Hey there, thanks for tuning in to St. John's Asheville Sermon Podcast. We're a church in Sydney's inner west, following Jesus and helping people find grace, learn hope, and be light. If you'd like to visit us or find out more, go to cciw.church. I'll be first reading from Psalm 19, 9 to 16, which is on page 493. How can young people keep their way so pure? By guarding it according to your word, with my whole heart I seek you. Do not let me stray from your commandments. I treasure your word in my heart so that I may not sin against you. Blessed are you, Lord. Teach me your statues. Status. Um, with, lips my, with my lips I declare all the audiences of your mouth. I delight in the way of your, of your decrees as much as in your, all your riches. I will med- mediate, meditate on your precepts and fix my eyes on your ways. I will delight in your statutes. Um, I will not forget your word. I'll be also reading from Titus 2, 11 to 14. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all, training us to renounce impiety and, wordless, and worldly, worldly passions, and in the present age to live lives that are self-controlled, upright, and godly. While we wait for the blessed hope and manifestation of the glory of our great God and Saviour, Jesus Christ, he it is who, who gave himself for us that he might redeem us from all iniquity and purify himself for a people of his own who are zealous for good deeds. There's one more reading from John, uh, John 3, 1 to 3. Uh, now there was a Pharisee named Nicodemus a leader of the Jews. He came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you're a teacher who has come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do apart from the presence of God. Jesus answered him, Very truly I tell you, no one can see the kingdom of God without being born from above. Nicodemus said to him, How can anyone be born after having grown old? Can one one enter a second time into a mother's womb and be born? That is the word of the Lord. Uh, What does it mean to be a godly person? You know the answer to that question, right? You don't swear. You don't gossip. You do your daily Bible reading. You don't have sex outside of marriage. And you're on at least one Sunday roster at church. Good job, Hannah. Yeah. Now, look, don't mishear what I'm about to say. Um, I I, I work for a church. I'm a minister here. So I actually think all of those things are good things, right? And yet, doesn't that, as kind of a definition of godliness, just sound a bit, well, boring, really, uninspiring? Doesn't that list of things just kind of make you want to ask the question, so is that it, right? Is that all that being a Christian is about, these kinds of things? Is that really all that being a Christian amounts to? Just a couple of things to kind of tick off? We're continuing in our series this evening, as we've heard throughout the service, Unlearning Untruths. And today we're going to unlearn some untruths about godliness. Our goal in this series is to face up to some tough questions that are often thrown at the Christian faith. Some of those particular ones, actually, that we think are particularly in your face here in the inner west of Sydney. But we want to do so without kind of throwing the baby out with the bathwater. 
We want to drain away the untruths that we sometimes believe about what it means to follow Jesus, but hang on to what is precious and true and good. And our hope and prayer is that in doing so, we'll be better equipped both to stick with Jesus and trust him even more deeply and faithfully in our own lives, and also to answer those kinds of questions that we hear in the culture around us, to do it all without throwing Jesus out altogether. Uh, We're having a a question times throughout this uh, series. We're not going to have one tonight because there's lots of other things like the Warrens that we really wanted to have in our service together. Um, But in just a moment, my um, my phone number will be up on the screen. If you do want to ask a question, do text it to me because I'd love to hear what people's questions are. And we might have a go at answering some of those, maybe even in our Facebook group um, as well uh, as uh, joining, perhaps to hear from uh, Andrew at the pub uh, later in the week and engage with those questions some more. Now, I reckon this issue of uh, godliness uh, that we're um, talking about tonight is actually a really important one. It might actually even be the most important of all the things we're unpacking together in this series. Because what this is about, really, what godliness is really about, is the whole nature and purpose of the Christian life. And that means that if we let our idea of godliness be narrowed down to kind of just being some version of a nice person, whatever your version of being a nice person is, someone perhaps who doesn't sleep around, doesn't get drunk, and maybe just doesn't ask too many questions then we're going to inevitably end up asking, really, what's the point of all that? We leave ourselves open to confusion and disillusionment when we come down from the overwhelming joy, perhaps, of first being a Christian, or the excitement of taking hold of faith as our own, as a teenager or as an adult, and realise that the next step is, apparently, just do a few of those things. Really? That's where all this was going? Uh, Jesus himself, of course, said, I've come that you might have life and have it to the full. But sometimes if we let our, our, our vision of godliness be so narrow, it can seem like the content of a life of following Jesus is anything but full. It's actually just pretty dull. And the point seems to be to become a cookie-cutter, look-alike, same-same version of all the other godly people who hang around in churches. No personalities allowed here. To add to the problem, of course, talk of godliness often seems to be directed toward labelling people as either godly on the one hand or ungodly on the other hand, pure or impure. Uh, Those who can tick all the boxes are the godly ones, and strangely enough, a lot of the time, those who tick the boxes and are the godly ones also are apparently responsible for labelling those who are not the godly ones. Uh, In other words, to use a a, a kind of phrase that's out there in the ether, um, this idea of godliness can become weaponised. Uh, just the other day, in fact, in the church office, I was uh, saying to um, uh, the staff that I was struggling to get my head around this whole topic about godliness for this evening, and without missing a beat, quick as a bullet, Ali Warren shoots back, yeah, it must be pretty hard to preach about something you have no personal experience of. <laughs> I mean, come on, it hurt, Ali. But all joking aside, right, co- codes of behaviour called godliness can easily become criteria that we use for deciding who really counts as a Christian and who doesn't. And since we human beings are so desperate to feel good about ourselves and so talented at putting others in their place when that helps us to feel good about ourselves, that whole idea of godliness can really be used to hurt. You don't fit here. You're not a real Christian. You're not good. You're you're dirty. You're impure somehow. You're not living up to God's ways. That can happen when we get our ideas of godliness wrong. And so you might uh, just ask the question, you know, is godliness just a cover actually for saying no? Is that really what this is all about? Godliness is about saying no to life, no to difference and to personality, no to anyone who doesn't fit the bill or the party line. Is there no positive vision for what a life in Christ actually can be? 
What we're going to see as we unpack this together this evening is that uh, while our ideas about godliness can often be reductive and restrictive and even hurtful, that God's idea, his vision for us in godliness is precisely the opposite. It's expansive, it's freeing, it can even be healing for us. So, a really simple outline for the sermon this evening. Five points this evening, just to mix it up for you. Excellent. We're going to find out five things that the scriptures tell us about godliness. Firstly, that it's a disposition of the heart. Secondly, that it's about obedience to Christ. Thirdly, that it's a vision for good. Fourthly, that it's different for different people. And finally, that it actually turns out to be about finding your true self, who you really are. That's what we're going to unpack together this evening. So, point one, godliness is a disposition of the heart. Now, this might be obvious, but I think it's worth repeating again and again and again. Godliness is first and foremost actually about your heart. It's not first and foremost about a list of behaviours. It's about having your loves transformed by the grace of God in Jesus Christ. That's what we're on about. Uh, We see that in that incredibly helpful little passage that we read from Titus chapter 2. In uh, chapter 2 verse 11 we read, For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, and to live self-controlled, upright and godly lives. Uh, There are some really useful little insights for us even just in those first two verses. Uh, Firstly, what is it that leads to godliness? Grace. It's grace that leads to godliness. And so it isn't about ticking off a list of behaviours that make us godly. It's about the grace of God that appeared in the life and death and resurrection and ascension of the Lord Jesus. Godly living isn't something that you kind of do after you're saved in order to stay saved. It's actually part and parcel of God's very work of salvation in your life. Uh, Secondly, uh, godliness is learned I don't know if you noticed that at the start of verse 12. Really interesting. The grace of God that brings salvation trains us. On the one hand, it trains us to renounce ungodliness, and on the other hand, to live in a godly way. It's actually about, there's a a process here. There's something to learn, not simply something to tick the boxes, but to learn how to do something for yourself. We'll come back to that in a moment. Thirdly, notice what's paired with ungodliness in that verse. Worldly passions. Uh, the Greek word for passions there, epithumia, desire or over-desire. It's a word if you hang around Christchurch in the West long enough, you'll hear a little bit about it. It's the language of the heart. It's about our loves. Godliness is first and foremost what happens to your heart when it gets caught up in the grace of God. Uh, God who is the one, as Paul continues in verse 14, who in the Lord Jesus Christ gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession. Godliness is something that has been won for us and granted to us by Jesus. It's him who makes us pure. Godliness names what happens to us as we fall more and more in love with the one who loves us and gave himself for us so that he could claim us for his own. Another way of putting this is that godliness isn't about giving particular bits of your life to Jesus, if you just give the, like, the language that you use to Jesus and don't swear or gossip anymore, if you just, that's, that's what he wants. He wants that bit of you. That's not what we're talking about here. No, godliness, it turns out, is about giving your whole self to God. Uh, C.S. Lewis uh, writes really beautifully about uh, this whole idea in the last section of mere Christianity. He doesn't use the word godliness, but he's talking about the same idea. Uh, he writes about the way that Jesus gives himself to us as we give ourselves to him. I'm going to read you a little bit of it. It's up here on the screen for you as well. Lewis writes this, Christ says, give me all. I don't want so much of your time and so much of your money and so much of your work. I want you. I've not come to torment your natural self, but to kill it. 
No half measures are any good. I don't want to cut off a branch here and a branch there. I want to have the whole tree down. I don't want to drill the tooth or crown it or stop it, but to have it out. So, he continues, hand over the whole natural self, all the desires which you think innocent as well as the ones you think wicked, the whole outfit. I will give you a new self instead. In fact, I'll give you my self. My own will shall become yours. Do you see what C.S. Lewis is getting at here so beautifully? Jesus' own will, his own heart, will become your own will and heart as you respond in love to his grace toward you. That's what godliness is all about. But just because godliness is firstly a disposition of the heart doesn't mean, of course, that behaviour doesn't matter at all. In fact, behaviour matters a great deal. Because how we live turns out to be an expression of what we love, an expression of our hearts. Godliness as a disposition of the heart will be displayed in the way that you live, a way of life that the Bible calls obedience. That's point two for us this evening, obedience to Christ. It turns out that Jesus is actually the one who makes this connection between godliness of heart and obedience to him in the starkest of terms. Uh, Here's Jesus speaking to his disciples the night before he died. In John chapter 14, he says this, If you love me, you will keep my commandments. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. Jesus said it, and so obedience to God, obedience to him, to Christ, that really, really matters. Godliness of the heart should lead to godliness of life. The scriptures are clear that there is, in fact, a good way to live and a bad way to live. That's what Psalm 119 we read from is all about. Teach me your statutes, Lord, that I may keep my way pure. Uh, Paul even sums up the whole purpose of his missionary work uh, in the, the first chapter of Romans as to bring about the obedience of faith among the Gentiles. There's a godliness of life that flows out of a heart transformed by grace in faith. But the Bible's picture of the obedience of faith is about more, again, than just following a set of rules. Uh, Rather, it's about learning to approach the whole of life on the basis of the gospel, to be trained, as Paul writes in those verses from Titus, in a new way of living. As your love for Jesus retrains your heart, you're more and more able to respond to each circumstance you face in a way that actually reflects his grace and love back to the world. It's the same kind of thing that Paul talks about in Romans chapter 12. He writes, Be transformed by the renewing of your minds so that you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. See what he says there? You are going to learn as you are transformed by grace to be able to discern the will of God, to know, to see, to work out for yourself what it is that God would have you do in any particular circumstance or situation. Godly obedience, even obedience, is not seen first and foremost in ticking off the right set of behaviours, but in learning to respond with grace and love, to discern for yourself what it is that God is calling you to. And it turns out, right, the Bible's got a bunch of these lists of things, you know, don't do these things, do these things. There's lots of those in the New Testament. But it turns out, actually, the purpose even of those lists in the Bible is not actually as straightforward as you might think when you first read them. They're actually given to us to help us train our hearts in godliness. These lists, if you like, function as stakes in the ground that help us to kind of navigate life as we learn to discern the will of God. Take the list that's in Colossians chapter 3 for an example. Put to death, therefore, whatever in you is earthly, sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires, greed, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming on those who are disobedient. That's what not to do. And then it continues a few verses later with a list of things that you should do instead. 
As God's chosen ones, holy and dearly loved, clothe yourselves with compassion, kindness, humility, meekness, patience. And add to, to, to that list, Paul goes on to add forgiveness, and above all, he says, love. Now, what's going to happen when you start to uh, try and identify those different things on those lists in your own life is that you'll go, huh, most of these don't actually have a specific thing for me to do. They're actually about being a particular kind of person. You'll start to try and identify these things and you'll realise that actually it, it might look different to show kindness in one situation to another situation. It might be that as you think about a gossip, which turns up in a bunch of these lists in the New Testament, turns out gossip's really bad. It might turn out when you think about it that actually in, in one circumstance, having a conversation with a third party about something about another person is actually a right and appropriate way to show love and care and concern for someone. In another situation, it's gossip. There's discernment involved here. These lists, you see, aren't supposed to be boxes for us to tick. They're tools to train our hearts in godliness. So we begin to see the shape of what it looks like for us to actually live out godliness of heart in our lives. Um, you can, uh, can weaponise these codes, of course, right? We've been talking about that a little bit already. You can, uh, you can you know, take these codes and say, be that. And if you're not being that according to what I think that looks like, then there's something wrong with you. We're going to come back to that in a little while. But you know what else you can do with these lists uh, as well, of course, these codes, if you like, is to just replace them with a different list. Go, nah, I'm not really sure about that code, but I know this is what godliness looks like. I've got my own list over here. Don't do that either, right? These lists are given to us in Scripture. They're those stakes in the ground to help us work out what godliness looks like. You can't just go and replace them with something else, and yet you actually have to wrestle with them to work out what those things are going to look like for your life in practice. They're about what kind of person you're going to become as you grow in godliness. Uh, and what's it going to look like? When you kind of become that person more and more, what's the, what's the outworking of that actually going to be as you see it in life together? What's Jesus' vision, if you like, for the purified people that he's redeeming for himself? Point three, a vision for good. Uh, the final verse of that little passage from Titus tells us exactly what kind of people Jesus is training us to be. He gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness, to purify for himself a people for his own possession, who are zealous for good works. The end result, you see, of the work of God in our hearts by his grace to grow us in godliness is that we will be zealous for good works. They will be really super excited about the great stuff that God gives us to do to serve one another, to serve him, to serve his world. And so already you should start to see, right, that godliness isn't about reducing our concerns to a few narrow behaviours, saying no to life in all its fullness. Instead, it's about training our hearts to discern what good God has laid before our feet to do. The good works he's prepared in advance for us to walk in. And he wants us to throw ourselves into loving one another and the world just as God has loved us, to do good works. And that means that whatever it is that you're doing in your work, in your study, in your relationships, in the ways that you serve here at church, that's part of what godliness is all about. To be throwing yourself into those things from the heart. That's what God wants from his people. That's what it means to live a godly life. You could sum it up, if you like, what we've said so far about godliness um, in a really clever phrase that, that some genius came up with. Find grace, learn hope, be light, right? That's what godliness in the end is all about, to find grace, to learn hope, to be light in the world. But that's going to look different for different people, point four. Uh, to try and tell you what, I'm, what I mean by this, uh, about it being different for different people, I want to tell you a little story. Uh, I, I've got a friend, his name's Josh. Uh, he was at church for a while uh, down in Berkeley, in the, the north of Wollongong at Berkeley Life Centre, who are one of our gospel partners, actually. 
Uh, Berkeley's a pretty rough kind of suburb. Uh, lots of housing commissions, something like 90% of the dwellings in, in Berkeley are, are housing commission, and lots of people who've previously been incarcerated, who've um, been released from prison, and Berkeley's where they found themselves able to um, afford a home. Uh, my friend Josh uh, told me a story about a member of their church there, a woman who became a Christian in prison, actually, as it turns out happens a lot. She moved to Berkeley when she was released, and one Sunday she arrived uh, 15 minutes early for church. Not even you guys arrived 15 minutes early for church. It turns out she usually arrived half an hour late for church. And so Josh was like, whoa, something big is happening here. He assumed the worst, actually. But as she got closer and started babbling away about whatever was going on, it turned out she wasn't agitated so much as excited. And she bounced up to him and she said, I have to tell you the most amazing thing that's ever happened. Here's what she said. This is my paraphrase. She said, yesterday I was having an afternoon nap. I was woken up by someone banging on the door. I went to see who it was, and it turned out to be my new neighbour from over the road, a woman who also had been just recently released from prison. I had no idea what this could be about, and she was yelling at me through the screen. I opened the door, and I said, what's going on? And she screamed at me, getting right up in my face, come and fight me. Come out in the street now and fight me. And what she'd done is she'd gotten all of our neighbours from all the houses around and brought them to the front door of my house. And they were going, yeah, come out and fight her. And you know what, Josh? I didn't do it. That's it. That's the story. Bit of an anticlimax, maybe? Not according to Josh. Uh, he said, you know, that was one of the most amazing spirit-led moments of growth in godliness I have ever seen from anyone in my life. That was huge the self-control she had in that moment, the desire not to kind of assert her power over somebody else if she could, but instead actually just to, to willingly say, you know, I, I'm, I'm at peace here, I don't need to do that. Now, what's the point of telling you that story? Uh, simply that training in godliness looks different for different people. The grace of God that's been revealed captures the hearts of all kinds of people in all kinds of circumstances. Some people have much more obvious types of ungodliness going on in their lives. Others... And secret, this is probably most of us. Others have much more invisible forms, much more socially acceptable forms of ungodliness going on in our hearts and our lives. If godliness is first and foremost a disposition of the heart, though, and if we take Jesus' rebuke to the Pharisees seriously, you know, he calls them whitewashed tombs. He says, you look right on the outside, but on the inside you're full of all kinds of grossness. You tick the boxes, but there's no holiness here. It's quite possible, you see, that what's happening in my heart or in your heart, however nice I might be on the outside, is far more serious and damaging than what was going on for our sister in Berkeley. Godliness is going to look different for each of us as grace trains our hearts more and more to discern the will of God to be zealous for good works because actually we all have different sets of life circumstances, different personalities, different God-given abilities. The commands that God's given in those kinds of lists and stuff that we see are the stakes in the ground, the broad brushstrokes, to enable us to begin to fill in the particular picture of godliness that God's going to have for each of us. You know how you know that that's true? It's when you hear those lists read out, including the ones I read out before. A lot of the time you sit there and you go, oh, that one's okay, oh, that one's okay, that one's okay, oh, don't talk about that one. You know, a lot of the time we have one thing on that list that that's, I know that's a thing for me. I know that's an area of godliness I have to grow in. It's different for each of us. Now, immediately, that should show us, right, the stupidity of trying to weaponize godliness. You've got no idea what is in someone else's heart. 
You have no idea what's in someone else's personal history. You have no idea where they started out on the journey of being trained in godliness. And so someone who looks less godly than you on the outside might actually have come a whole lot further in their heart than you have. You can tick off all the commandments, you can give outward obedience to Jesus and still have your heart set on something else. That's often, I think, what's going on uh, when we uh, weaponize godliness. Usually, actually, what it's about is not, not the person actually who is godly actually seeing someone else's ungodliness. It's about trying to make themselves feel okay, you see. If I can say that I'm godly and do it in comparison to that person, then I must be all right. It's like that story that Jesus tells about uh, the Pharisee and the tax collector. You know, both of them are praying together at the temple. The Pharisee prays, thank God that I'm not like that sinner over there. And lists a bunch of his godly achievements for God. The tax collector prays, God be merciful to me, a sinner. Jesus says it's the tax collector who went home justified, the one whose heart was right with God. The Pharisee, you see, wouldn't know true, true godliness if it came up and bit his phylactery. Phylactery is a thing. You know, I'll tell you about it later. He's got no idea about true godliness, right? He's using the appearance of godliness in comparison with others to feel okay about himself. But that's not how it works, because it's about the heart. It's going to look different for each of us. And so that means you can't weaponize it, actually. You just have to be okay with the part of the journey that you're on and encourage one another, actually, in the particular part of the journey that they're on, even if it's not the same place as you. It's different for each of us, and that leads us into our final point this evening, that actually, in the end, it turns out godliness is about actually finding your true self, who you actually really are. Uh, true godliness, worked out through your own particular personality and story, means growing more and more into your true self, the very specific and beautiful person that God has called you to be. Uh, check out Ephesians uh, chapter 4, verse 22. Uh, Paul writes, Put off your old self which is being corrupted by its deceitful desires. There's that word again. Loves, hearts, desires. Put off your old self, which is being corrupted by its deceitful desires, to be made new in the spirit of your minds and put on the new self, created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness. This is where all the talk of godliness in the scriptures is supposed to lead us to, right? The new self And not just kind of like a slightly nicer, more polite, more socially acceptable version of you, but the real you that God always intended, the new self that he remakes in the Lord Jesus. And it's a new self that, don't fail to notice this, a new self that is like God. That's what godliness is all about in the end, to be like God. Our ideas of godliness can so easily seem restrictive and reductive, like it's about diminishing life rather than having life in abundance. But what could possibly be more expansive and beautiful and freeing and joyful than being like God? That's where all this is leading. I quoted C.S. Lewis earlier, uh, writing about how God wants uh, not just some bits of your life, but your whole self. And later on, in the last chapter of uh, Mere Christianity, he writes about uh, what it is that God will actually do with your whole self if you give it to him. I'm going to read you a long section of this because I thought about it and I was like, oh, I can't say it better. I tried to work out how to say it. I can't. I can't do it. And at 10 a.m. at least, they were like, I'm really glad you read all of that stuff. It was good. So, you know, hopefully I'm making the right decision here. Let me read you a little bit from the end of Mere Christianity. To become a new people means losing what we now call ourselves. Out of ourselves, into Christ we must go. His will is to become ours. We are to think his thoughts, to have the mind of Christ, as the Bible says. And if Christ is one, and if he is thus to be in us all, 
Shall we not be exactly the same? It certainly sounds like it, but in fact, it is not so. He continues, the more we get what we now call ourselves out of the way and let him, Jesus, take us over, the more truly ourselves we become. Uh, There's so much of him that millions and millions of little Christs, all different, will still be far too few to express him fully. He made them all. He invented, as an author invents the characters in a novel, all the different men and women that you and I were intended to be. In that sense, our real selves are all waiting for us in him. It's no good trying to be myself without him. The more I resist him, the more I try to live on my own, the more I become dominated by my own heredity and upbringing and surroundings and natural desires. In fact, what I so proudly call myself becomes merely the meeting place for trains of events which I never started and which I can't stop. What I call my wishes becomes merely the desires thrown up by my physical organism or pumped into me by other men's thoughts or even suggested to me by devils. Eggs and alcohol and a good night's sleep will be the real origins of what I flatter myself by regarding as my highly personal and discriminating decision to make love to the girl opposite me in the railway carriage. And propaganda will be the real origin of what I regard as my own personal political ideals. I am not he concludes, in my natural state, nearly so much of a person as I like to believe. Most of what I call me can be very easily explained. That's even truer now than when Lewis wrote this with you know, all the psychological advances and research we've had in the last 50 years. I'm not in my natural state nearly so much of a person as I like to believe. Most of what I call me can be very easily explained. It's when I turn to Christ, when I give myself up to his personality, that I first begin to have a real personality of my own. Now, do you see what he's getting at here? To be like God, to be like Jesus, is actually the most beautiful version of you that you could ever be. You purified. You made new. You living the life that God built you for and calls you into. It means becoming who he always meant for you to be. Godliness, you see, has nothing to do with uh, that idea of uh, conforming yourself to society or to your parents' expectations or even to the moral code of the particular Christian community you're part of. At the same time, of course, it's not about uh, non-conformity for the sake of non-conformity. I'll be the opposite of whatever people expect of me to be because it turns out that's just as much being defined by the things that you don't like, the kind of restrictive morality around you. Instead, godliness means conforming yourself to our great God and Saviour, Jesus Christ. And I want to finish just with with this one thought. Why wouldn't you want to be like him? Why would you want anything else other than to be be like him? This one who is full of endless grace and ceaseless kindness, who speaks truth that frees, who loves the lost, who hangs out with the lonely. And even more than that, the one who gave himself for us, the one and only godly one, God himself as one of us, perfect godliness in human flesh and blood, and he shouldered the full weight of our ungodliness, all that stuff that makes us so unlike the God who we worship. Everything that makes us so unlike him, he takes on himself and drags it down with him into death. He gave his very self for us. Why? Because he wanted you. He wanted you for his very own. You, your very self with all of your weirdnesses, with all of the things that make you feel like you don't fit. He wanted you so that he could purify you. 
make you whole, make you new, make you like him. That's what godliness is all about. That's the vision that God sets before us, and that's what he's made possible for us in Jesus by his spirit. Let's give God thanks for this work that he does in us. And gracious and loving Heavenly Father, we are so glad that what you care about first is our hearts. We're really glad because the love that you've poured out for us in Jesus is exactly what we need to be accepted as we are and yet not left as we are, to have our hearts remade in love and grace as we seek to follow Jesus in our lives. And so, Father, we pray that you will continue to capture our hearts by your grace and so that you would change our lives to be more and more like Jesus. Father, we long for this. We long to be like the one who has given everything for us. And so we long to live lives where we give everything to him. Father, take us in all of our brokenness, all of our weirdness, all of our impurity and ungodliness, and make us what you call us to be, in the power of your spirit, in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.